Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Next week begins the first of our two-week-long 500th episode extravaganza. Okay, so technically it would normally be episode 499, but we just couldn't hold it any longer. We've got too much deliciously dark fiction, not to mention some special guests, to keep it on the shelf for another minute. And yes, I was 100% one of those kids that would try to sneak a peek at the presents on Christmas Eve. So, let's consider this your Tales to Terrify Miss Eve gift. From us to you. No sneaking or peeking required. And to add a little bit of icing to our milestone cake, Tales to Terrify has been selected as a finalist for this year's People's Choice Podcast Awards in the fiction category. Thank you to everyone who voted for us so far. Check out podcastawards.com for more info and details on all the categories and finalists. We have a trifecta of stories to serve up for you this evening, the first of which comes from Rose Blackthorn. Rose Blackthorn lives in the desert, but longs for the sea. She is a writer, dog mom, jewelry maker, a vowed coffee drinker, and photographer. 
her short fiction and poetry have appeared online and in print with a varied list of anthologies and magazines, including the collection Beautiful Broken Things. Links to connect with and find out more about Rose, including her website and social media, are in the show notes. Children of the Night, join me for Rose Blackthorn's Forever, a Tales to Terrify original. I can hear them talking. They're not overly loud, but their voices carry clearly. This is the first time he's brought anyone back to the house. Our house. The house left to me by my parents upon their untimely deaths. At first I'm shocked, surprised, appalled. I'm not sure of the right description. We've been alone here for so long. I suppose I should be pleased that he's reaching out, making new friends, inviting them over. And yet, I've had him to myself for so long, there's almost the bitter tang of betrayal as I listen to them. I could go in, introduce myself, but he's made no attempt to draw me out of hiding. In fact, I don't believe he said anything of me at all. How long have you lived here? Her voice is sweet, faint, with the blush of attraction. I can't blame her. He is quite the catch, if I do say so myself. Five. No, six years. It was in disrepair, but I've been renovating a room at a time. All new cabinets and kitchen and bathrooms, and new hardwood floors throughout. Would you like a tour? Yes, he's quite handy. When we came here, his eyes lit up at the clean, antique lines of the house. As he'd stated, it needed a lot of work. He's done a beautiful job, I'm the first to admit. It's so remote out here. Don't you get lonely? I can hear them moving now, voices hushed as they visit the kitchen and dining room then the hallway that leads to the broad, glass-walled sunroom. My mother had grown roses and dozens of ethereal orchids. I loved the gorgeous things she nurtured there, and while I do not have my mother's green thumb, I did inherit her solicitous heart. Pulled from memory, I hear them returning, still talking casually, while the tone of their words alludes to something not casual at all was in her family for, I think, three generations. I consider myself lucky to have the place now. I'm very sorry, by the way. They've paused, and I wonder how close she is standing to him. Is she gazing up into his vibrant blue eyes, her own eyes filled with the same emotions that have crept into her voice? I didn't say that before but I wanted you to know. I can picture his warm smile, 
as warm as the tone of voice. We all go through things in life that change us. All we can do is hold on to our memories. There is another silence. What are they doing? Again, I feel the urge to announce my presence, regardless of the consequences. Before I can do so, he says, Would you like to see the rest? Yes, please. She sounds breathless. Is she infatuated with him? I can hardly blame her, but still. There are two smaller rooms, an office and a den along the back of the house. They're coming closer. But this is my favorite room. The master bedroom. I hear the door pushed wide, a slight creak in one hinge that needs oil. There's a soft click as he turns on the overhead fixture. Only a thin line of light reaches me where the door of my hiding place meets the expertly crafted door jamb. I am silent, something like terror keeping me still. I can't see them, not really, except as phantom figures in my mind's eye. There's no doubt now. She has fallen for him, as I did in the beginning, and he means to go through with it. Here, in our house, in our bed, as though the promises he'd made to me meant nothing at all. I have controlled myself for all these months, waiting for him to come back to me. He moves through our house, lives his daily life as if I'm no longer here. And now this. How can he? How can he do this when he promised? I can restrain myself no longer. I don't care any more about patience or understanding or giving him a chance to apologize. I realize like an epiphany that I'm stronger now than I ever was. So I push on the door, bolted and locked to keep me in my place. Wood splinters, the hidden hinges shrieking as the door flies open and rebounds against the lovingly textured and painted wall. The light is still on, revealing me to two sets of startled eyes. The woman screams as she scrambles backward across the bed. She's blonde and petite, similar enough to be my sister if I hadn't been an only child. Her clothing has been half-removed to reveal most of her curvaceous figure and works as unintended bondage. She slips off the side of the bed, her head striking the heavy oak bedside table, and immediately lies limp and motionless. He stares at me, mouth agape as he takes me in. It's almost as though he doesn't know me. My skin is gray and crepey, hanging from bones that protrude now that all curves and softness have fallen away. My blonde hair is lank and tangled, hanging about a face that hardly resembles my former visage. The bruises around my neck remain, proof of his last embrace, the last time he'd told me he loved me. I know I have changed, but my love for him still remains. Rachel? He stammers, all the blood draining from his face. You promised you'd love me forever. My own voice sounds foreign to me, 
a rasping wheeze that grates through the air. Forever is all I want. I pull him up into my arms, holding him with all the new strength i found. Bones crack, and his struggles fade, along with the slowing beat of his heart. The place he built for me behind the wall is small. But it will be large enough for two. Forever. That was Rose Blackthorn's Forever, as read by Nicole Swanson. Nicole Swanson is an actor and producer from Augusta, Georgia, who has discovered she loves hiding away in her closet and telling stories to her loyal companion, Blackjack the Studio Dog. An occupational therapist in the Georgia Corrections System, when not narrating, Nicole enjoys a good cup of coffee while sitting on her porch swing and listening to the rain on a dark and stormy night. Discover more of Nicole's adventures at NicoleSwansonVO.com. Thank you, Nicole. Our second tale tonight comes from Eric Fomley. Eric Fomley's stories have appeared in Daily Science Fiction, Flame Tree, and Inferno, Volume 6, Tales from the Worlds of Warhammer. You can read more of his stories on his website, ericfomley.com, or follow him on Twitter at Prince Grimdark. Listen with me, children of the night, to Eric Fomley's Give or Take, a Tales to Terrify original. I don't make friends. It's either because I'm too smart or too weird. When I met Amy, we clicked. Maybe it's our mutual interest in the cybernetic studies at the university. Maybe it's because we're both outcasts. Either way, she's the first person who has ever wanted to come over to my house. If I play my cards right and don't screw this up, I could have a successful friendship conversion. Amy stands at the mantel in my living room, cardigan pulled over a patterned romper. The pictures of Mom and I at different points in my life are propped up on the wooden shelf. You and your mom are so cute. When do I get to meet her? She died. There's no better conversation killer. She scrambles for something to say. Her mouth hangs open. So I continue. We were best friends. I change the subject before the friendship development mood goes down the tubes. Would you like to watch a movie? Yes! She almost gasps the word, the escape, out. What do you want to watch? Uh... I don't want to kill the conversation further. 
I pull out my phone and search the top ten trending movies and rattle them off. She bites her lip as I suggest them, and I can tell they don't interest her. Bonding time is at risk. We could just stream something, I say. She brightens a little. Good. Do you want popcorn? With M&M's? She smirks. It's the thing we connected over in class. You know it, I smile back. The moment seems saved. Can I use the bathroom? My heart skips a beat. I tell her it's the door on the right, and watch to make sure she goes through the right door, not the one at the end of the hall. I go to the kitchen and throw a popcorn bag in the microwave. I've read a lot about movie nights and slumber parties. I wasn't invited growing up. As I said, too weird. This would be a good step in the right direction. I could start to earn her trust. Then I'll ask her about the room. A door creaks, and I hurry to the hallway to make sure she comes straight back. My blood runs cold. The bathroom door is open. Light off. The door at the end of the hall is cracked. I run back to the kitchen, grab a knife, then hurry down the hallway to stand in the doorway. She has her back to me. Her head roves, takes in the vats, vials, and bubbling fluids, the chamber sustaining my mother's entrails. She turns around, pale face, wide eyes. I half shrug, close the door behind me, and turn the lock. I would have asked her, I don't have time to make another friend. My grip tightens around the knife. I'll have to move fast. I can almost hear the thump of the last piece I need to bring my best friend back. That was Eric Fomley's Give or Take, as read by Crystal Hammond. Crystal Hammond is a narrator-slash-writer, cancer survivor, and non-binary queer human. They grew up in rural North Carolina, nurtured by a steady diet of local Blackbeard legends and Confederate ghost stories. These nuggets of folklore and myth fostered a lifelong love of storytelling and all the drama that goes with it. They also have a master's degree in biological anthropology and adore ugly cats. Feel free to check out their narration website at crystalhammond.com or find them on Twitter at thekmhammond. Thank you, Crystal. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Our final tale this evening comes from Nathaniel Lee. Nate spends a lot of time putting English words into various orders. Sometimes people give him money afterward. He is entirely too enthusiastic about complicated board games involving wooden cubes. He has been published in various locations, including Nightmare Magazine, all of the Escape Artists family of podcasts, and most recently in Proliscariot, an anthology of horror short fiction themed around class conflict, or at least flavored with class consciousness. You can find links to his writing and a plethora of free short and microfiction at mirrorshards.net, as well as links to purchase his self-pubbed collections of short fiction, each a mix of previously published and new works. Listen with me, children of the night, to Nathaniel Lee's Azazel, a Tales to Terrify original. The black dog would bite her if he could, Gwen knew. There was a tension to his stance, a quiet watchfulness. You got to recognize the really dangerous ones if you worked long enough. Loud dogs, big dogs, angry dogs, frightened dogs. Gwen could deal with all of these, calm them, and soothe them, at least get them into their kennels to await a less stormy mood. But the black dog was dangerous. He would bite the moment she gave him an opening, and he would do it deliberately and with forethought. Gwen wondered who had gotten him into his cage in the first place. She felt a twinge of fear at the mere thought of the black dog being loose. 
Where did our new friend come from? she asked Julie, keeping her eyes on the dog. Julie stood up from scrubbing a cage in the next room and followed Gwen's eyes. Gwen saw the black dog glance at Julie, eyes tracking, hand, hand, throat, before his attention returned to Gwen. That one? Julie pushed her bandana, a patchwork of miniature flags from around the world, back over her iron-gray curls, white flecks of foam standing out against her skin. I think he came in yesterday, maybe? Or this morning? He was here when I got in, anyway. Ask Brad, I guess? Has he been processed? Shots? Papers? Gwen still did not look at Julie. She felt that to break the contact between her dark brown eyes and the dog's startling blue ones would be to invite disaster in some obscure way. Julie shrugged. Ask Brad. He's beautiful, though, isn't he? Gwen took a step backward. Objectively, the dog was well-formed. Medium-sized, perhaps forty or fifty pounds, short hair, glossy and clean, without the slightest hint of a break in color. Clean lines to his legs and back, not noticeably over or underweight. If it weren't for the unnatural intensity of the dog's stare and his pale eyes, unusual in an adult, he would be fine and wholly unremarkable specimen, a mongrel of no clear ancestry, but good health and a likely prospect for quick adoption. Yes, he is, Gwen said at last. Another step backwards and she was out of the new arrival's room. She dodged to the side and forced herself to look away, but she could feel the black dog watching her, despite the intervening plaster, wood, and sheetrock. I'll go get started on walkies until Krista gets in, okay? Don't work yourself to death, dear, said Julie with good-natured resentment. I'll just be here scrubbing poop out of plastic while you play with puppies out in the yard. I'll clean all the litter boxes afterward, all right? Gwen smiled, the banter warming her. She felt as though she had just come inside from the bitter cold. Her eyes tingled. Julie nodded. Got to keep that toxoplasmosis infection topped off. Better than some things I could catch around here. Gwen walked away, trying to keep her pace steady and calm. But she was fleeing, and she knew it. Gwen wondered if the black dog could hear her terror in the tone of her footsteps. In her mind's eye, she could see him in the half-lit room, a blot of shadow against the off-white walls. She saw his jaw open, flashing crimson tongue and ivory teeth as he panted in open-mouthed canine laughter. She had seen the joke in his eyes, heard it as clearly as if he had spoken. One day, he would close those jaws around her throat. He knew it, she knew it, and he knew that she knew. That was why he laughed. The shelter only had a couple of full-time employees like Julie. Most of the staff was composed of part-time volunteers. Gwen didn't have another shift until Thursday, two days later. Her time between was filled with forms and files and faxes and other F-words, the regimented insanity of bureaucracy. 
Everyone in the clerk of court's office had an outlet of some kind to compensate. Bert played handball with bloody-eyed intensity. Rosalind knitted increasingly elaborate projects and sold them online, sometimes for more than she'd made in the same time at the office. Anton monitored comic book prices like a champion day trader, buying and selling even during hours when he was supposed to be working. Gwen rescued dogs. She knew, in her moments of detached self-consideration, that she had an evangelistic fervor for the work that was considerably off-putting. Her social media pages were full of calls to action, pledges and petitions, announcements of rallies and news articles about puppy mills, dog fights, cat hoarders, and animal cruelty. Her friends lists were full of more of the same, a circle of concerned echoes. It was enough, mostly. Gwen worked and texted and posted and hung up flyers for the shelter's upcoming adoptathon, and she had almost forgotten about the black dog by the time she returned to the shelter and saw a kindly-faced old man signing the paperwork to adopt him. When Gwen spotted the black dog, free of his cage and sitting prim as a show dog on a thin leash, she froze instinctively. Her modern mind engaged in a three-way argument with her primate instincts and the ancient nub of lizard brain, both of which shrieked at her to run, find a tree, get away. With some effort, Gwen mastered herself and started forward again. The black dog's ears rotated to follow her motion, but his gaze remained on his new owner, who seemed oblivious to the intense examination. "'There you go, Mr. Agouti,' said Julie. "'Everything's all in order. I hope Sidney enjoys his new home.' Today her bandana featured neon pineapples on maximum contrast background squares. The old man smiled and donned his hat. He was wearing a thin black tie and a sport jacket, as well a man about town from seven decades previous. I'm sure he will, he said. It will be nice to have someone to look after again. I've gotten too used to it. He chuckled and Julie's eyes crinkled in response. Mr. Goody tugged on the leash and the black dog, Sidney, now it seemed, turned and obediently followed him out. He had impeccable leash manners, as though he'd been trained for years rather than found as a stray on the street a few days earlier. He cast one glance back at Gwen as he slipped out the front door with Mr. Gooty. I will be his death, the black dog seemed to say. You know it, and I know it. His mouth opened in a panting grin, and then they were gone. Poor old guy, said Krista. Gwen turned in surprise. Had Krista seen it too? Oh, I know, said Julie. He goes to my church. We were all so sad when his wife finally passed away, even though it was probably for the best. He was hardly getting any sleep looking after her fit to put himself in the hospital the way he was carrying on. Gwen shook her head, as if to deny her premonitions. 
I guess you found the paperwork then, Julie? Hmm? Julie looked up, blinking. Oh, oh yes, it's, it's in here. She pointed to the muddle of papers on the desk. Gwen shuffled the documents until she found the folder. She flipped the pages and frowned. It says that Beth did his intake examination. Yeah, that's right. Beth wasn't in this week. Oh. Julie hesitated like someone trying to remember a dream. Well, maybe she did it last week and just wrote the date wrong. He wasn't here until Tuesday, remember? I saw him in the arrivals room. Gwen closed the folder. Something's weird here. Krista laughed. Yeah, it's a big conspiracy to give a poor stray dog a home. Maybe he's a spy. He's dressed for it, all in black like that. Julie smiled ruefully. You know how the paperwork is around here, Gwen. Lord knows you complain about it often enough. Somebody had to check on him or else he wouldn't have the forms. We'll ask Beth when she comes in on Saturday, okay? It might have been Brad after all. Gwen tapped the folder against her hand, feeling the paper shift inside. She gnawed at the inside of her lip. I just hope we didn't send someone out with heartworm or something. Proper documentation is important. Krista rolled her eyes. You gotta leave your day job at work, Gwen, seriously. I'll make a note to check with Beth and call Mr. Goody back if we need to. How's that? Julie held up a pad of post-it notes as if warding away a vampire with a crucifix. Gwen sighed. What could she tell them? She heard the dog threaten to kill the old man? She was afraid it could watch her through walls? I'm sure it'll be fine, she said. As it happened, Mr. Goody didn't last until Saturday. When Gwen came in Friday afternoon, the black dog was back in its cage in the new arrivals room, and Julie and Krista were clucking over something on the news. Gwen recognized Mr. Goody's face, somewhat younger, in a grainy photograph displayed on the screen. The text at the bottom read, Notorious Garden Hose Killer Found Dead in Home. Suicide a possibility. A perky brunette with too much lipstick was discussing the salacious details in a serious tone of voice. I knew it, Krista crowed. Didn't I say? You did, said Julie. You surely did. Thank goodness he didn't take anyone home. Who knows what he have done to a poor defenseless animal? Wait, what happened? asked Gwen. Is that... The man from yesterday, Krista confirmed, her eyes glowing. I recognized his face from the news. I called the cops after Julie sent him away, remember? And it turns out he'd written his real address on the forms and all, but when they got there, he was already dead. I don't... Gwen blinked. How did we get the dog back so quickly? Back? Julie clucked her tongue. I didn't let him take any dogs home. I told him we had to process his application and to come back later, and then Krista called the police tip line. Huh, said Gwen. She glanced at the black dog, who was sitting upright in his cage, watching her. I don't remember hearing anything about a serial killer on the loose. Oh my God, do you even own a TV? Krista gasped. It's been all over the news for frickin' weeks. I must have missed it, said Gwen, who watched the news every night over her microwave meal. 
the black dog's mouth opened and his tongue lolled out. Gwen narrowed her eyes and pursed her lips, but the dog met her gaze squarely. I know, and you know, but nobody else. She could almost hear the words, only us. Gwen looked away. The National Park was a two-hour drive away, but it was the only one close enough to reach by car that even allowed pets in at all. Gwen did her best impression of bubbly flirtation with the park ranger who let her in. Mannerisms and trite phrases copied from a thousand half-remembered movies and television shows and tried not to look guilty. The dog had been in his kennel, the back seat, throughout the drive, so quiet that Gwen had found the loudest, rowdiest rock-and-roll station she could and turned the volume up just so she didn't have to listen to the silence. It took Gwen most of the day to find a sufficiently out-of-the-way place to do the release. She found a clearing with signs of deer relatively near a stream with fresh water. She left the plastic cage in the middle of a grassy patch. I don't know what your deal is, she said, but there's enough here to eat and drink that you won't starve or anything. If I'm crazy, well... At least I didn't do more to you than was already done, and this is a much better place for an animal than a city. Gwen reached down and hesitated, her hand on the latch. She looked over her shoulder. Her car was perhaps fifty feet away, the door open. Good luck, I guess, she said. She flipped the latch and ran for her car, slamming the door with unnecessary force. The dog didn't move. He just stared at her through the plastic holes in the back of the container. Crap, said Gwen. The plan had been to collect the box afterwards and leave no trace. She waited a little longer. Had she not opened the door enough? If she left, would the dog die of exposure, trapped in a hot plastic box for days on end? The one blue eye she could see blinked at her as she fretted. Then... Like a magic trick, it vanished. Inside the shadowed interior, the dog turned around and nosed at the door, which sprang open with a metallic twang. He stepped out into the sun and looked at the sky and the trees, then turned his gaze on Gwen. She held her breath. With a slow blink and an expression almost of resignation, the dog stalked into the underbrush and disappeared with a rustle of leaves. The clearing was apparently empty. It was a long time before Gwen worked up the courage to leave the safety of the car and collect the empty kennel. The dog beat Gwen home. She pulled into the parking lot, shaky with nervous tension, and had barely managed to get the plastic kennel in the front door when she sensed something was wrong. She turned, and there in the new arrival's room, in the same cage as before, the dog sat and regarded her with laughter in its icy eyes. Julie didn't know what Gwen was talking about when she asked how the dog had gotten back inside. The next time the black dog was adopted, Gwen missed the entire thing. She was busy processing a returned cat who, 
according to the forms the temporary owners had filled out, didn't match the couch. Gwen wasn't sure if it was meant as a joke or not. She saw the doe-eyed girl come in and heard Krista's typically over-enthusiastic greeting, but then there was paperwork to do and blanks to fill in. Gwen only realized what had happened when she saw the girl leaving with the black dog walking sedately at her side. Gwen uttered a profanity and leapt to her feet, and she saw the dog's ears twitch through the front window. His tail wagged once, languidly, like a cheerful wave goodbye. "'Do we have any cats that come in paisley?' Gwen asked, sauntering into the front room with what she had hoped was complete nonchalance. Krista glanced up from the desk. Uh, nope. Probably for the best, anyway. I don't think any cat would want to have a good life in that house. She nodded at the desk. Whose papers are those? These? Krista looked down. Brenda someone or another. She's in my bio class at UNCC. She just got her own apartment, moved out of the dorms. I told her to come see us and we'd hook her up with a kick-ass pet. She got lucky, too, a dog that wouldn't last more than a week here. That's probably true, Gwen agreed. Two days later, Brenda, someone or other, was dead. She'd hung herself in her new apartment, which had apparently been paid for out of the campaign funds for state delegate Harvey Richardson. Mr. Richardson's wife was not amused and the scandal threatened to bring down his bid for re-election. The black dog was back at the shelter, eliciting no comment from either Julie or Krista. Gwen's casual inquiries revealed that Krista had never heard of the girl, who was a political science major and an intern on Delegate Richardson's campaign, and who had never set foot in the bio-building after the mandatory freshman science courses. Gwen left them to their gossip and crept into the new arrival's room. The black dog was in his usual cage, invisible in the shadows, save for his luminous blue eyes. He was sitting up, and he cocked his head to the side when Gwen entered. He made a noise deep in his throat, a quiet questioning sound that bypassed Gwen's conscious mind and turned her knees into water. She reminded herself that there was a cage between her and those sharp, sharp teeth. I don't know how you did it, she said. She pitched her voice low so Julie and Krista wouldn't overhear. She knew the dog would hear and understand. But I'm gonna find out. Gwen did a lot of reading over the next several weeks, scouring the internet for references to spirit animals, curses, and legends of black dogs. Gwen made lists of books to request through interlibrary loans, anything that seemed like it might have a solution, a way to stop the curse. She bought charm stones and protective talismans from a store so thick with incense smoke that she could barely see. She muttered prayers when no one was around and sprinkled the cages with holy water snatched from a church font. Nothing worked. The black dog was adopted and returned three more times, leaving in his wake a pair of hitherto unconnected lovers who carried out a suicide pact. A messy domestic violence incident in a previously tranquil marriage 
and a quiet librarian whom no one had suspected of molesting the little boys in the children's reading circle. Gwen had quite liked Mr. McKelvey, the librarian who had flirted with her in his shy, bookish way until the dog had erased his life and substituted a villain's instead. She noted it as another entry in the dog's debt column. Gwen nearly disappeared from her usual online haunts and missed the adopted-thon, unable to watch someone take the black dog home and unwillingly doom themselves. No one but Julie noticed, and Julie accepted Gwen's claim of illness, with only a cheery wish for her to get better soon. Gwen still worked her volunteer shifts in the latter half of the week, walking dogs, cleaning litter boxes, and filing paperwork when she could stand it. If she took a little extra time checking and double-checking some of the adoption records, well, it wasn't like anyone else ever filed anything correctly anyway. Do you know what a scapegoat is? Gwen asked Julie one afternoon. Her latest book, an encyclopedia of myth and legend, lay open on the desk. She kept her eyes locked on the black dog, still sitting alert and ready in his preferred cage in the new arrivals room. Sure. Julie said. Her bandana had chickens and eggs alternating on black and white checks. That's when Gary Fartson claims the dog did it, she laughed. My father used to blame it on barking spiders. Yes, but originally, said Gwen, originally, the people of a community would cast all of their sin and shame onto an animal. It could be a goat, or a dog, or a cow, but it was usually black for the symbolism. It was a ritual, like a magic spell, and then they'd send the animal out into the wilderness to die, and it carried their sins with it, and everyone was free again. The goat escapes, see? Scapegoat. She paused, rubbing one hand on her throat. Once, the goat came back. When the sins came with it, it caused a terrible disaster that killed a whole bunch of people. After that, when they sent the goat into the wilderness, they pushed it over a cliff, so it broke all its bones on the way down, just to make sure. No one wanted their sins to return after they went to all that trouble to get rid of them. Oh, mercy, Julie covered her ears. That's horrible, Gwen. Yeah, said Gwen. It probably was. She glanced at Julie, who was staring at her with a frown furrowing her wrinkled brow. I think I want to adopt a dog. Can you help the background check? Sure. Julie was still looking at Gwen as though she'd never seen her before. I thought you always said your house was too small, though. It might be, but I'm going a little crazy living by myself. Gwen forced a laugh, and it came out thin and reedy like a cracked flute. I need some company. Julie nodded slowly. Did you have someone particular in mind? There's only one dog for me, Gwen said with a thin-lipped smile. The black dog's mouth opened in silent amusement. His teeth were very white. The black dog sat inside the cheap plastic carrier in the back seat, as still and silent as an unsprung bear trap. His eyes glinted when they met Gwen's in the rearview mirror. 
I'm probably just crazy, Gwen told him. You're just a dog, and I'm going around the bend at long last. It's not like memory is all that reliable. It's probably just not remembering everything right and misinterpreting things like I always do. Probably nothing strange is happening at all. The dog panted laughter. Gwen could hear it when he was this close. Soft, whispering sounds and a touch of warm, canine breath on her arm. Those other people, they didn't know. They didn't ask for what happened to them, but neither did you. Me, though? I know. I'm asking. Sometimes, Gwen swallowed and put on the turn signal. Sometimes in the stories, someone could make room for the black animal, the scapegoat, make a space inside, like budging over on the couch to watch TV and eat some ice cream together. There were stories where that gave people special gifts, powers. I don't want that. I just want this to stop. I want you to stop. Gwen looked up and met the dog's gaze once more. He was motionless again, the stillness that comes when only way forward is a lunge for the throat. I don't know if I'm going to wake up tomorrow as some kind of monster, with my name splashed across the headlines and stories about secret sex or drugs or murder. Animal torture, probably, if you want to be ironic. Or maybe I'll be like that you are, some kind of free-floating Cassandra complex, a door-to-door banshee. Gwen mimed, knocking on a door, her voice rising to hysteria despite her efforts to control it. Knock, knock. Avon calling. We have the ultimate fate of mankind and a special sale on perdition and judgment eternal today. She glanced at the carrier in the back seat. Blue eyes met hers through the wire mesh door. The dog gave no indication of what it was thinking. She turned into her street and stepped on the brakes. Well, we're here. She tugged the parking brake and hesitated. Her front door seemed very far away, larger and thicker than she'd remembered, a bulwark against the world and all its works. She was about to open it up and let all that inside, every last poisonous drop of it. The dog waited. Gwen turned around awkwardly and put one hand on the latch of the carrier door. The dog was quivering with tension, piano wire and drum heads. In his pale eyes, the avalanche hovered on the edge of movement. When it came, it would swallow everything in less time than it took to blink. You can bite me if you want. I can't stop you. I won't stop you. Gwen squeezed the levers and tugged the door open. She closed her eyes. Nothing happened. She opened her eyes again. The dog remained frozen. She reached out to stroke his nose, the first physical contact between them. The dog jerked backward violently, thumping the walls and ceiling of the character and setting the door clattering. Gwen pulled back immediately. She got out of the car and walked away a dozen paces. Slowly, inch by inch, the jet-black nose 
peeped out of the open car door. The dog slithered onto the ground, belly low. Gwen crouched and averted her eyes. Gradually, one ear rose, then the other. Then the black dog was sitting, as outwardly calm as ever, staring at Gwen with an almost challenging air. Good enough, Gwen said. Come on, I'll show you your new home. That was Nathaniel Lee's Azazel, as read by Scott Fulps. Scott Fulps is a narrator and voiceover artist. When not disturbing your dreams with tales of horror, Scott can be found in Washington, D.C., where he works as a restaurateur. He currently resides in that most haunted of commonwealths, Virginia. Thank you, Scott. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Amazing fans like Kathy Robinson, aka Deadly Blonde. If you're not a supporter already, be like Kathy head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify where you'll find all kinds of perks from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout outs and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into the show to help make it as dark and devious as possible. And we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Brian Rollins, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we begin our dark rituals with more Tales to Terrify.
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 